text this morning is Zechariah 9, verses 8 through 10. These are the words of God. And I will encamp about mine house because of the army, because of him that passeth by, and because of him that returneth, and no oppressor shall pass through them any more. For now have I seen with mine eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen, and his dominion shall be from sea even to sea, and from the river even to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this text before us this morning. We thank you that by your word and through your spirit, you speak to us. Uh, Lord, we pray now you do the miracle of preaching, that you would speak through me to your people, and that we might respond in faith uh, to what your word has to say to us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The danger of cliches is that all too often... They're, they're usually quite right. They, there's a reason why they've become cliché. Uh, to illustrate this, one French poet uh, said, remarked that the first man who compared uh, a woman he was in love with to a rose was a poet. The second who did so was an imbecile. Clichés are often right, but because they're right, they too easily uh, receive an eye roll. They too easily become uh, something we just bounce off of. They too often become, uh, they get consigned to poster board uh, behind the goalposts of a televised football game. And truths that should shake the foundations of darkness are met with an eye roll. And I want to come back to that a little later on that we oftentimes have bounced off of certain uh, cliches that have uh, arisen within the uh, modern evangelical church, uh, and one is, is commonly derived from uh, the text before us and the, um, uh, the, the celebration of Palm Sunday of Christ entering Jerusalem. And so I want to talk first, though, about um, this, this text before us in Zechariah, which prophesied of Christ's entrance into Jerusalem. Um, it, the, the situation is such that the, the Israelites are returning from their exile uh, back to Jerusalem, and what they find is that they're once more, Judah is once more enduring uh, an occupation by foreign nations. We see that in the first uh, couple verses of Zechariah 9 uh, of, of uh, these, these various nations that had camped out in, in absence of uh, the Israelites being in, in exile. Um, you had all these foreign occupations. Uh, hey, there's, there's some free property. Let's go uh, take that land. And so the land of Judah has become filled with uh, sort of an encroachment of these enemy nations, these foreign nations. And Zechariah is assuring the returning exiles as they're coming back and Jerusalem is in ruins. And they begin the work of rebuilding uh, the temple under Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, and they, uh, he assures them uh, as they look around and they go, is this really going to work? We've got, we're surrounded by all these foreign nations that are going to, uh, there's going to be lots of rivalry and contention. How are we going to reestablish our nation uh, with all this mixture in it? And Zechariah assures the returning exiles that God was soon to come and would cast out those powers. Uh, in verse 4 of the chapter, uh, 
Behold, the Lord will cast her out, and he will smite her power in the sea, and she shall be devoured with fire. Speaking of uh, Tyre and Zidon. That these foreign powers who had come to occupy Judah during the exile would be cast out. And in verse 8 we read that he would see to it himself. There in verse 8 we say, he, he says, I will come and I will camp in the midst of my people. Um, and no more will there be uh, this coming and going throughout the land of, of, of Judah, the, the, the invading hordes that come in and go out, plunder and, and uh, occupy will be no more. And, and the, the close of that verse, verse 8, for now have I seen with mine eyes, is a really interesting one in the Hebrew because he's, he, um, it's not just how oftentimes in Scripture we'll be anthropomorphized. We know that God doesn't have eyeballs, but we, we know that he sees everything. And so the writers of Scripture will often speak that way. This text in particular is much more personal. Uh, it, that it's, it's, it's highlighting that he has seen it with his eyes. He has come to see to it himself, this, this expulsion of these enemy forces. Uh, the assurance of this promise of deliverance. So they might ask, well, how do we know this is going to happen? How will these things come to be? Zechariah's answer is, as prophets often would, a sign. And the assurance of this promised deliverance would be that Messiah would enter Jerusalem, that their king would come uh, upon the foal of an ass, with rejoicing shouts filling Zion, there in verse 9. Uh, Zechariah is also elaborating, I believe, on um, Isaiah, uh, Isaiah's prophecy in, in uh, Isaiah 62, verse 11. Isaiah said this, Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the world, Say ye to the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. Zechariah is riffing on that same sentiment, that same prophecy, that God would come, the Messiah would come, to restore Israel, to restore salvation, and would bring salvation. He's elaborating on Isaiah's earlier prophecy of the Messiah coming into Zion, entering Zion, endowed with salvation. Uh, given the grace of God, the strength of God, the endowment of God to accomplish the salvation of his people. And so this joyful entrance, this one that would be marked by shouts of joy from the daughters of Zion, from, uh, from the people of God, uh, while riding upon the, the foal of an ass, this joyful entrance would, be, uh, would result in the expulsion of the foreign forces while establishing peace with the heathens. We read in verse 10 that he's going to, as the king enters in, comes into Jerusalem, that soon then would, would be cut off the chariot, the, the horse from Jerusalem, the battle bow would be broken, and as a result, peace would be established with the heathen. Uh, the Messiah would come to establish a, a peace, and not only that, but the, the boundaries of his reign, of his dominion, would be from sea to sea and from the river even to the ends of the earth. And so faithful exegesis of this text, even before Christ came, led faithful Jews, godly Jews, to read messianic texts like this one and go, well, by golly, it looks to me as if the reign of Messiah is going to be from the river to the ends of the earth. His dominion is going to be from sea to sea. Putting two and two together is Messiah would come and his reign would be universal. The boundaries of the promised land would be expanded to include 
the corners of the globe. And so it led godly Jews to conclude that under Messiah's reign, the boundaries of the promised land would be universalized, would, would, the extent of which would go to the ends of the earth, which meant that to the ends of the earth, to the furthest reaches of the globe, enemy nations would either crumble or convert as Messiah established his reign. Now, now many uh, uh, want to, you know, uh, look at why, why the selection of riding upon a donkey, why upon the foal of an ass. And growing up, I always heard it said that um, Jesus was taking the custom of Roman generals who, would, who were accustomed to enter a city either on a donkey or upon a horse, signifying peace if they rode in on a donkey and coming as a conqueror if they rode in on a horse. And so some point to that as just sort of an easy explanation for why Jesus selected a donkey to ride into Jerusalem. But that doesn't necessarily, uh, that's not the only explanation we have uh, at, our, uh, at our disposal, so to speak. We have um, at one point in biblical history, if you recall, during the time of the judges and, and during um, uh, earlier periods, riding upon an ass was for the illustrious. Think of Balaam and one of the most famous donkeys in history, Right? He rides upon a donkey, and this was a sign of his illustriousness. Matthew Henry comments that uh, Jesus coming upon a donkey was, was a, a tip of the hat to uh, the judges of Israel, one judge in particular who had 70 sons and sent his sons out into uh, Israel to judge upon 70 white donkeys. And so Matthew Henry points to that and says, Jesus is coming as a judge, as an ancient judge of Israel to deliver and to make right to once more, ex and that fits nicely with our text, that uh, the, the judge would come and would expel the Moabites or the various, the Philistines or the various uh, nations who had encroached upon the promised land. Uh, but by the time of Zechariah's prophecy, donkeys were no longer for the illustrious. They were more the, the, the transportation of the commoner, of the lowly. Riding upon an ass, certainly by Roman times, uh, riding an ass was just sort of a, a typical um, mode of transportation, and it was a sign of lowliness. But I don't think we have to pick sides here. We don't have to choose sides. Was Jesus coming like an ancient judge, like a Samson, a Gideon, a Barak, to uh, come and expel, expel the... Uh, the foreign nations, uh, to, to bring justice once more to Israel? Certainly. Was Jesus taking a Roman custom and using it for his own purposes? Could, could very well be a, a likely tip of the hat in that direction. Or was Jesus coming in humble lowliness to defeat the enemies alone, coming in, in humility and, and meekness to defeat the foreign powers on his own? The answer can be yes to all three. But the full sum of the picture, of course, should be guided by what the text explicitly says. So if we go to Matthew 21, Matthew tells us why Christ, what Christ was doing in riding in upon a donkey. Christ riding into Jerusalem was the prophetic sign which Zechariah had foretold. That sign had come alive now and was fulfilled. Matthew says this, all this was done, Jesus riding upon the donkey into Jerusalem. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet Zechariah, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt the foal of an ass. So Matthew explicitly says 
Jesus rode in on a donkey to point to this particular prophecy, to say that this particular prophecy had come alive and was being fulfilled in their midst. Which means that Christ's entrance wasn't a publicity stunt. It wasn't just a way to to jazz up the crowds and get them excited and and, uh, try to gain more votes, so to speak. This wasn't just a publicity stunt. It was a fork in the road. It was a decision point. It was a point of crisis for Jews, for the faithful, for the people of God. Would they receive the Messiah or would they crucify him? Would they would they accept him as the king which he was prophesied to be or not? So either Jesus of Nazareth was the promised Messiah as attested by his many signs, this being perhaps the most public of his signs. And he picked one that was simple and unavoidably linked with the Messiah. That the king would come to shouts of joy, riding into Zion on a donkey. It was no accident that that was what Jesus selected to fulfill the prophecy. And to force the question, was he the promised Messiah? The Jews would either need to accept him and receive him, uh, as attested by these many signs, this one being the, the most public, or reject him, or say he wasn't the Messiah. You see, the gears of war which had come to occupy Israel were soon to be overthrown. The enemy who had encamped in Israel, the enemy which is unbelief, the enemy which is injustice, the enemy of straining out gnats and swallowing camels, the enemy of uh, failing to to trust God to truly deliver his people, were soon to be overthrown. The Messiah in this text in in Zechariah is described as being just, being the one who brings true judgment, God's law, once more, to be established in his nation. He would have salvation, be bringing salvation and deliverance for the people, and that he would be lowly. So whatever other symbolism might have been involved, Jesus riding upon the ass in Jerusalem was a claim to be the Messiah. Now, he said himself his kingdom was not of this world, but we know that by his sufferings, he had come to conquer all the kingdoms of this world. Israel was once more uh, occupied by the foreign power of the Romans. And so it would fit nicely that the, the common Jew might say, Yes, this is the Messiah. Come to finally drive out the Romans. And we we see the disciples oftentimes asking that, Lord, at this time, will you restore Israel? Once more, Israel was occupied by a foreign power. But we know that what Christ was coming to do was to destroy the works of the devil. That's what 1 John 3 tells us. But the foreign power which Jesus had come to overthrow, to expel from his people, from the land, from the earth, he had come to defeat was the spiritual principality of Satan's kingdom. He had come, riding upon the foal of an ass in accordance with the prophecy of Zechariah, to say, the Messiah has come. And what 
did Zechariah say the Messiah would do? The Messiah would cut off the chariot from, from dwelling in the land. He would break the bow. He would make peace with the heathen. And he would expand his dominion from sea to sea and from the river even to the ends of the earth. And so Christ's entrance into Jerusalem is a claim that Christ would come to destroy the enemy of his people, the indwelling forces, that the occupying forces would be overthrown, and then establish his kingdom throughout the whole world. Now, the reason I mentioned cliches at the beginning is I want to I touch on something that has grown more common in our modern moment in the church. And that is that um, many people are trying to lean away from our evangelical heritage. They're wanting to put some daylight between the church and our historic Protestant evangelical heritage. You'll notice that um, in, in a recent event, uh, the, the shooting in Atlanta, uh, the, the young man, uh, the gunman went and killed several people. Uh, and, and immediately, the, uh, the media and the, the, the Twitter mob began searching for uh, a motive. And it turned out this, this young man was a, a member at a, a Southern Baptist church that happened to be in alignment with uh, the Founders Ministry. Uh, which is a, a movement, a, a, an organization seeking to preserve uh, the integrity of God's word, to stand up against um, critical race theory, intersectionality, the various isms that are uh, in, uh, tantalizing many in the church. And, and people immediately began to put, uh, try to connect this dot with this dot. Oh, he went to this church, so that must mean this church radicalized him. It must be the way evangelicalism speaks of sexuality, the way evangelicalism speaks of these things, uh, which led this young man to violence. Even, even leaders going so far as to publish Washington Post op-eds accusing evangelical Christianity for being the, the, the source of, the, the radicalization factor that led this young man to the murders, rather than simply asking a question that's, or saying that's what sin does. It turns violent and evil and, and uh, eventually breaks out on, on, our, on our neighbor. And so what's happening is a moment in the church where to, to align yourself with historic Protestant evangelical orthodoxy is becoming less and less in vogue. It's, it's becoming more and more a, a pariah, a more and more of a, a thing to lean away from and disassociate from. And perhaps no motto shaped 20th century American evangelicalism than the statement, Jesus is coming soon. The end is near. Jesus is coming soon. Put it on the poster boards at the, the, the football games. And, and one of the ways that that rose to prominence is that in the late 1800s, a new end times position rose to popularity. Uh, it, it was called premillennialism, and it, it hinged on a belief that the world was on the verge of an apocalyptic end. And they were seeing signs of the times that there would be wars and rumors of wars, and certainly as World War I and World War II came on the scene, it became very evident to them, to the evangelicals, that this 
could be a very good explanation for uh, how the, the end of the world would come. And so this idea gained prominence and popularity uh, amidst the church. One of the signs that this would, uh, that this of, of premillennialism, that, this, that there would be an apocalyptic end to the world, one of the signs would be a growing apostasy, and that would be followed by Jesus secretly rapturing uh, his, his church, the true Christians, would be uh, zoomed up to heaven, would be zoomed up to the clouds. And this movement gained rapid popularity uh, in, the, in the evangelical world. Sadly, at the same time, many of the mainline denominations which held to the more prevalent, what we would call the post-millennial view or the preterist view of, uh, of the end times, which would, would hold that uh, the destruction of Jerusalem was the fulfillment of most of the prophecies of, of Revelation, that that's, the, uh, that's what was being pointed at and spoken of. So those that held to the more historic, and I would contend biblical, interpretation of those apocalyptic texts Unfortunately, many of those mainline denominations who had on paper biblical, biblically exegeted uh, uh, positions began to be duped by various errors. They began to be allured by German theologians' higher criticism. Well, you see, Isaiah is such an eloquent book, and there's two different styles of writing, so there's no way on earth that an author could, that Isaiah could have written both genres so skillfully. It must be that there's some other pseudo-Isaiah out there uh, who snuck stuff in. And this resulted in questioning which portions of Scripture were reliable and not. It began nitpicking through and, and deconstructing the text of Scripture to the point where it was no longer Scripture being taught. Another error that was enticing the church at the time, the mainline denominations at the time, were uh, Darwin's theory of the origin of species and the implications of that. And while many uh, in the mainline denominations began to accept Darwin's view without really seeing the implications of what that does to our view of uh, uh, who man is, that man is created in the image of God, created personally by God, they missed it. They, they, they didn't see the implications. And furthermore, they turned the gospel into merely, they neutered it into merely being a sort of neighborhood cleanup, social uplift. Let's make, let's, let's clean up the trash in the neighborhood rather than the gospel being proclaimed, which is the power of God to salvation. The, the, the gospel being proclaimed that would change dead hearts, would convert hearts from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. And so our, our, our premillennialist uh, forefathers, as it were, in the modern evangelical church, saw that the authority of Scripture was under attack by these various errors. The gospel was at stake, and Christian morality would be compromised by embracing these threats, by embracing these views. And so they rose to the defense of Scripture, of, of the authority of Scripture, and it was truly heroic. They sought to return to the fundamentals of the Christian faith, and thus this movement came to be known as fundamentalism. Well, many leaders in the movement, J. Gresham Machen, for instance, as a prime example, sought to retain the more historic term of evangelical. But the engine driving much of this modern evangelical fervor 
those that were seeking to return to the fundamentals of the faith and reject these errors of higher criticism or Darwinian evolution or um, social justice as the, the, uh, the, the purpose of the church. One of the main engines driving it was that the evangelical fervor was driven by a conviction that Jesus is coming. This sentiment motivated the evangelicals of the 20th century to fight against the looming darkness so as to be found faithful when Christ came. A noble aim. Certainly, we should seek to be found faithful when Christ comes. A noble aim, even if situated atop flimsy exegesis. What I would point out is that I think much of the exegesis of the apocalyptic texts of premillennialism is far too, uh, it's, it's trying to read things literally rather than reading them according to the genre that they're written in and, and interpreting them accordingly in the, in the genre and the historical narrative and the symbolism that scripture uses. And so our, uh, this last generation or so has been like an algebra student who, despite faulty steps along the way to solve the problem, comes to the correct answer. The evangelical movement of the 20th century was motivated by this sense of urgency in light of Christ's imminent return. Now, you'll, you'll notice that in our, in our church, we, we hold, for the most part, to uh, post-millennialist view of, of the end times. Um, and, and so, but we also come from, many of us have come from a heritage uh, of, of evangelicalism built upon the, the foundation stones of the fundamentalist movement. And what I want to highlight is that rather than uh, leaning away from some of the primary motivations of our uh, faithful brethren who've gone before us, Perhaps we should see in what they did some wisdom. When all are leaning away from the evangelical heritage, now is the moment, I believe, to, to wave the flag. And the flag is this. The reality is that Jesus is coming. Our evangelical heritage got that right. Indeed, that sentiment outdates 20th century fundamentalism. It was expressed during the Reformation by their emphasis, the Reformers' emphasis, on living quorum Deo, before the face of God. God is watching. God is engaged in the affairs of earth. God cares over his children. God is coming soon. Indeed, the one thing that we've agreed on in Christian history regarding end times is that Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. Our confession that we confessed this morning, confessed Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead. And that motivation, that engine, drives the true saint. The true saint in any age waits expectantly for Christ's coming, whether it be in revival by sending his Holy Spirit to awaken unconverted souls to the power of God in the gospel, or whether Christ comes to us in death, when we pass from this life to the next, or whether it be when he comes in the final judgment. Note that the rejoicing crowds on Palm Sunday 
And notice the substance of their song. In Psalm 118, that they were quoting from, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is entering Jerusalem. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. And their response, the crowds on, on Palm Sunday had the right one, joyfully receiving him as the Messiah, which he claimed to be. It was the Pharisees who were scratching their head and quizzically uh, scoffing at whether he really was the Messiah, telling him to shush the crowds. But our heritage is built upon what the word of God declares. And the Christ we preach is ascended to the right hand of the Father. He isn't playing video games with Cheeto-dusted fingers until his dad tells him to come and get us. Jesus is not a dispassionate observer of human history. Rather, Christ is ruling the world. He is present and involved in the affairs of history. Jesus is not disengaged from the affairs of history. He is holding the scepter of the universe. And his entrance into Jerusalem was his declaration that he was the king who would come to establish his dominion from the sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. He was claiming that his jurisdiction, as a result of his expelling the enemy powers by his death and his resurrection, that his dominion would be total. And so we rightly join the Palm Sunday crowds in declaring Jesus is coming. He is coming to cleanse the temple. He is coming to make dry bones come alive. He is coming to topple tyrants. He is coming to mend the brokenhearted. He is coming to humble overbearing husbands and rebuke sniping wives. He is coming to rescue prodigal sons. He is coming to defeat every last one of his enemies because he is king of the world. He comes in fire and fury. He comes in gentle words of redemption. He comes to usher saints to their eternal rest in his presence. He comes to undo the wicked and their evil designs. And neither you nor I can stop him. Congress can't pass bills to halt the advance of his kingdom because Jesus is coming. Think of Ezekiel's vision. At the beginning of the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is given a vision of God's throne, and it rested upon the cherubim, and it's described as this really weird, you're sort of like, what is, what is Ezekiel seeing? It doesn't make much sense. It's wheels within wheels. And the implication is that God's authority was swift as lightning, was total in the direction where it could go, that there wasn't a square inch of the planet to which God's governance and dominion held sway. God's authority was swift and immediate and universal. Our Christ has ascended on high. He rode into Jerusalem, declaring that he was that king. Come to break the bow. Come to shatter the sword. Come to drive out the horses and the chariots. And so Christ's authority is not like a bureaucracy of committees where we need to wait until the regularly stated meeting to take up the business of motioning and seconding to take up this or that question at the next stated meeting. No, when Christ comes, it is as king, endowed with salvation, so as to overthrow the wicked and establish peace. You see, one of the reasons I think it's dangerous 
in this current moment when you see so many people leaning away from the evangelical heritage. And yes, there are, there are, like I said, there are qualifications. I think there are, there are points where the evangelical tradition, the fundamentalists, went in the wrong direction in certain ways. But on the whole, they were building on the authority of Scripture as recovered in the Reformation and built upon the church fathers. That the Word of God governs the church. And what the Word of God declares is that Christ is King. And He is coming to every nation. He is coming to every person. He is coming to bring judgment soon at the last day. And the reason I think it's dangerous for us at this moment to lean away from that is that we're at the point where a generation will be so saturated in their sins, both real and imagined. They're saturated in their, their real sins of uh, sexual perversion and pornography and abortion. And they're, they're saturated with imagined sins of their microaggressions and their privilege and the fact that they tweeted something 10 years ago that now is out of the mainstream sentiment. They're laden with their sins, both real and imagined. But there's no way to be saved. There's no way you can be forgiven. There's no atonement in this current false gospel. You can't grovel enough. No one is righteous enough. No one has enough intersectionality points to escape the coming mob. This current moment is one where a generation is laden with sins, both real and imagined. Sooner or later, your tweets will be found out. Your unorthodox opinion on some vital matter will be discovered, and the pitchforks will come for you. They'll try to get you deplatformed. They'll try to get you. To, they'll try to get your job to fire you. They'll try to get the the companies to move out of your state. We are a generation laden with guilt and shame, both real guilt and shame and imagined guilt and shame. But it's in this black midnight of this generation's soul that is just the sort of moment in which Jesus will come. When he will send his spirit through the preaching of the gospel, that through Christ our sins are forgiven, through Christ our, we are given eternal life, through Christ we are raised from deadness to life, through Christ we are redeemed from all our sins. This black midnight of, the, of this generation's soul is just the sort of moment in which Jesus will come. His Holy Spirit will convict of true sin, reveal the righteous judge who comes endowed by the Father with the power to save. Jesus is coming, and when he comes, we shall be turned. The enemies will be driven from our midst, and we shall be free. Christ's entrance into Jerusalem is a claim to be the Messiah, who would not only overthrow evil nations, but would overthrow the evil which dwells in you. And then... Jesus would establish his dominion upon every inch of this world. So you must either receive him as the Lord of all the earth or reject him. You must either throw wide the gates of faith to have him rule in your heart, in your family, in your business, in your temptations, or you must close the doors to him. But the gospel which the church has faithfully preached through her many windings is this, Jesus is coming indeed. Let's pray. Father, as your word says in Psalm 50, our God shall come and shall not keep silent. We know that when you come, you come to establish your kingdom. You come to drive out evil. 
you come to be glorified. Lord, we do join with those Palm Sunday crowds and we welcome you as king. We ask that you would come in our midst, in our generation, to overthrow all the machinery of, of, of wickedness, both in our lives and in our culture. And we pray that you would send a great revival, that you would turn us that we might be turned. You would humble us that we might be humbled so that we might enjoy the great and glorious reign of our Messiah, our King, our Lord. We now pray the words that our Lord and Savior taught us to pray, saying, Psalm 118 is a joyful song of thanksgiving, in which the psalmist calls on all the people of God to give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. We see this psalm recited when Jesus enters Jerusalem, and the crowd recognizes the coming king, crying out, Hosanna to the son of David, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We also have good reason to believe that this was a psalm that Jesus himself sang with his disciples when they celebrated Passover, the Last Supper, instituting this sacrament we are about to observe. And during that meal, as Christ sang this psalm, he knew exactly what was to take place next. The betrayal, the arrest, the mocking, the flogging, and the crucifixion. And in the face of all that, he sang lines like, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. But to put it somewhat crudely, this wasn't simply a pump-up song for Christ, one to make him feel better or forget his coming troubles. For he also sang, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. The Messiah of Israel knew who and what this psalm was fully about. Indeed, he is the blessed one who comes in the name of the Lord, but he was also about to become the final and definitive sacrifice bound and placed on that altar. And yet, he still pressed on with joy, willingly for you. This meal here is your salvation. It is the body and blood of Christ broken and shed for you. So as you eat this meal, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. And come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Father in God, we thank you for this covenant meal, which nourishes our souls week after week. We remember and praise the work of Christ on our behalf, and not just us, but for the salvation of the whole world. We ask that you would bind us closer together by your spirit and fellowship with you and one another as we partake of Christ now. And it is in his saving name we pray. Amen. So the charge is this. Jesus is coming. So expect to be visited by him. Expect him to deal with your sin and your shame. Expect him to comfort you when you are afflicted and expect him to bring you salvation. Look to him and him alone in his coming for that is our only hope. Now receive the benediction with believing hearts. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.